We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. My name is Q, and I'm an alcoholic, and I've been uh, sober since February 6th, 2023. I guess from my story, we'll start uh, when I was born. I was born in Ohio to uh, immigrant parents from uh, Iran. In preschool and class, it was always, you know, Brian Bunting, James Smith, uh, Chris Collier, and then Kumar's Fafai. So I was always, always felt different. Like I, I was out of it. We wouldn't really celebrate Christmas so much because we had Persian New Year. So I remember there's even one year my parents tried to accommodate me and we had a little cherry blossom tree and they put some Christmas lights on it and I was taking the picture in front of it all pissed off. I, I guess uh, the, the funny story about it is when I was five, I was asking my mom, when does my hair turn blonde? Because, you know, I, I just wanted to fit in and just assimilate and be part of the the area I was in, you know, because Ohio is pretty homogeneous, or, or well, back at that time at least. I guess they call it a, a third culture kid, where uh, you have one culture at school, one culture at home, and then you navigate with a third culture. So I was always pretty confused. There was only like two other Persian kids, and they were in the school district that I knew, not in my school. So, you know, I, I, I always felt pretty alone in that sense. Even home life wasn't so great. My parents were always fighting and they were fighting in Farsi and Persian. So most of the words I know are cuss words. <laughs> there was one one vivid memory that my parents, you know, uh, the, the police had to come and calm them down and stuff. And uh, I was just like, man, I don't even want to be at home. You know, I, I just want to be at my friend's house sleeping over or so that was just kind of how I was being brought up that uh, I just wanted to fit in and home wasn't cool. And uh, I was, I always felt like ashamed of my culture. My, my parents said uh, I was born in the eighties and that was when the Iranian hostage crisis happened. And, you know, they joked that they, they pretended to be Italian at that time because, you know, it was 444 days on the news of Iran is evil. Iran is evil. And I, I even remember in, um, I think it was 1998 when the World the World Cup, uh, Iran played the U.S. and Iran beat them U.S. two uh, one, and I was all excited. And I went out on my driveway with chalk, and I wrote U.S. Uh, Iran rules, USA sucks, and my mom made me wash it off. You know, <laughs> so it was, it was always like my culture. I had to be hidden, and I couldn't really be myself. Eventually, I moved to California in the eighth grade, still trying to fit in, and. You know, that's when um, drugs and alcohol started coming into play. Uh, at first, I, I mean, I guess it was, I don't think it was really responsible, but, uh, you know, it was on the weekends, you know, getting high, getting drunk. My parents were pretty straight edge, so they were shocked when they caught me one time. They sent me to therapy. And, and um, I, I guess, but I got tired of it, actually. I, I think it was like in 2004, I was like, man, I'm not, I'm not going to do drugs anymore. I'm not going to uh, drink alcohol anymore. You know, I'm, I'm just going to do my own thing. And I obviously wasn't aware of the program. So I was kind of white knuckling it. And basically everything that I was doing uh, went into my car. I had a 1996 Honda Civic EX. I lowered it. I got new rims. I got the exhaust. I got the intake, one of those little fart cannons or whatever. And I was speeding around. It was a manual shift. I was one of the only kids in school with manual. So, you know, speeding was my thing. And 
for that month that I was uh, giving up the drugs and alcohol, I was just speeding like a demon. What, what happened was one day at school, we had an open first period and I guess they had a pep rally. So the schedule was all different. So I met up, basically met up with two friends and we we're like, we're not going to the pep rally. And I was like, yo, you want to go to the road? And this road is Live Oak Canyon Road by uh, Cook's Corner. There's a mo- little motorcycle bar there. It's a long, narrow, windy road. And there's lots of crosses on the trees from people speeding and crashing and dying. And I, I took that road with my two friends trying to impress them because that was my thing because I was trying to give up substances and I was putting it all into the car and I was coming around a curve a little wide and I swerved. Another car was coming. I swerved. There's no shoulder. It's a long, narrow, windy road. And I smashed into a tree and like all I remembered, it was like 1022 on the clock and the, the trees, the shadows were coming over. And the next thing I know is just looking at my, I was just looking at my friend and and bloody and my friend in the back seat was screaming for help and stuff and i was like man what's going on and then then it just kind of fast fast forward it's just it was just like images that i had and then it was like someone coming up next to me and say hey are you okay and i tried to say no because you know i couldn't breathe and there's smoke coming from my car and everything and my, my ribs were broken so I, I remember it was really hard to say no and then uh and then i remember just the of the the jaws of life you know kind of opening up the car and uh yeah i was transported to western medical center and the icu emergency room and i mean injuries for me was i had a broken uh, left heel bone my the dashboard went into my knee so it tore my quadriceps in the in the meniscus and then uh, on my right i broke my ankle i i broke my uh right femur I had a compressed burst fracture on my L5 vertebrae, ribs broken, concussion, and I was actually the best one off. I um, I ended up uh, back at school first, and like well, four months later. But uh, my friend in the front seat, he had a traumatic brain injury, and he was in the coma and you know shattered bones. And the friend in the back seat, it was one of the it was a '96 Civic, so it was one of those old school middle seat belts, and. Uh, he had the ruptured spleen, ruptured kidney, and a collapsed spl- spine. So he had to get a rod there. So anyway, I, I I woke up in the hospital and I was feeling good. You know, they they had me hooked up to the morphine drip. You know, I, I was just like, I, you know, I don't know what was going on. This is my first time with opiates for two weeks. Like no one, I didn't really know what happened. I I, I think I kind of had an idea that I was in a car accident, but I was just just keep pumping me full of this stuff. They were doing the flow they were controlling it and then by two weeks they let me know i had two friends in the car who were severely injured and by that time they had given me a a a button where it would administer every 10 minutes and yeah the guilt and shame i felt that i had uh done that you know crashed first of all you know like that was my thing i thought i was going to be you know get a job as a delivery driver maybe do some racing i don't know so i was just ashamed of that and the the pain i caused for the friends and their families i was just pushing that button every fucking chance i got i remember the nurse had come up to me and was like out of like the the 10 times you could have pressed it you you pressed it like 247 times like some ridiculous number like that 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 I think was my beginnings of my actual addiction of uh, escaping and numbing myself from pain instead of 
dealing with the pain. They took me off and, you know, I was like scratching in the middle of the night or scratching out my IV and was bleeding all over the place. And so they started giving me Vicodins and Norcos and Percocets. And once they moved me home, I was still bedridden, but I was just taking those not as prescribed, you know, I was, I was popping like five to 10 pills at a time to try to get that morphine high. But by the time I started moving and hanging out with my friends more, I I was reintroduced to alcohol and, uh, you know, I realized the alcohol could mix with the pills, you know, could kind of extend the life. And yeah, so I I was starting to get really fucked up and, you know, eventually the prescriptions ran out and, um, my friend was still in, I think by that time, the, the other friend had come back to school, but then the, and he wasn't really talking to me. He didn't accept my apology. So that was rough. But, um, the other friend was still like at a halfway home for a traumatic brain injury. And yeah, it was senior year, you know, um, senior year, you know, everyone's smoking a pot and ditching and getting high. But even my stoner friends, I was in the stoner crew and, and they were like, dude, you smoke too much weed. And I was like, all right, I can quit. And I, I quit for 21 days, but I was drinking until blackout every day until I was throwing up blood. And I was like, oh, this is not as healthy. So I'll just stick with the weed. And you know, I was just smoking a shit ton of weed all through senior year and, and drinking when I could, when I wanted to. Yeah, that was that was high school. <laughs> so I guess the next up would be uh, I uh, got into college. In college, it was the first time away from home i was living in the dorm so my drinking was unleashed because b- before it was like we'd sneak out and get a bottle of popov and uh drink in the car in the park or something but now like i could have a 30 rack in the in the, my mini fridge and just drink and party in the dorms and you know i got i, I got written up quite a bit i actually had to move i should have been kicked out of the dorms but my ra stood up for me and then i was transferred from to another dorm that i partied less i got pretty bad with uh joining a fraternity because uh this was at a uci so i mean they don't have like the craziest hazing but you know the hazing is a lot of alcohol and that's where i you know i really learned to drink and drink hard liquor and that's when i really started blacking out consistently i was drinking through all of uh college and you know i was you know making the drunk dials to the ex-girlfriend saying stupid stuff and you know trying to hook up with girls but throwing up and you know scaring them away like that and it's a lot of embarrassing stories there in college and i guess it, it came to a head when um my senior year I, I somehow got a job as a ra in the dorms and i was on duty so i was supposed to be breaking up parties and i actually had broken up a party but i went back to my room with a, a friend to drink some he was in another ra yeah, I, I was like, man, some weed would be really good right now. And so, uh, you know, I'm drunk and I, I drive and pick up some weed from a, from a friend. And then, you know, I'm driving back home and I'm nearly home. But then um, I'm like, oh, man, Del Taco would be really good right now. And I, I go to Del Taco and I order my food. And then I guess um, while I was waiting for it, I, you know, waiting right before the window, I passed out or something and then just a cop, I remember knocking with his flashlight and I was like, fuck, I got caught. And you know, I was compliant, the community service, the fee, the SR-22, all that junk. But uh, yeah, that was my first and only DUI. Probably should have gotten more with my uh, drinking career in college. So like no one knew I was in jail or in the drunk tank. And uh, I was able to call a girlfriend. She was able to pick me up and I was able to come back 
to the dorms and turn in my duty bag to the office before anyone knew was the wiser. So I actually kept my RA position that whole year. I just wasn't driving half the year. Yeah, that's pretty lucky. Maybe a little God shot the thing. In college, you know, with with all this weed and alcohol, I I wasn't really um yeah, I wasn't really living to my full potential. I, I, was, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was undeclared in college for three years. And then I figured political science was the easiest major to complete in four years. So I just made that my major. And for political science, it was supposed to be law school, you know, taking your LSATs. And I remember I, was, I took the whole LSAT course and everything. And then I kept delaying my uh, actual LSAT test. And I didn't even score very good. And I was like, man, I'm not going to do... Uh, law school and so this was back in like 2008 9 so it was like the saturated law market you know everyone's uh a re- i guess a recession or something and then i decided that uh, i was going to go teach english teach english abroad i wanted to go to iran to teach english you know in my parents country and try to get connected with my roots and stuff but this was back in 2009 I, it, it was like the formings of the arab spring the it was the green revolution there in iran and uh, the the government started shooting at protesters students kids my age so my family that was there was like don't come don't come so i was like really bummed about that i figured hey like uh i like japanese food and uh i won't starve japan's got a a big English teaching industry. So I went out to Japan to Fukuoka there in the Southwest, Hata, where the Tonkotsu ramen comes from. Yeah, I went out there and in, in Japan, that I remember my trainer was saying, Japan is an engine and alcohol is its oil. And that couldn't be more true. Like we had like mandatory drinking parties with our coworkers. They had no mihoidai, like unlimited drinking. You just pay like 20 buck cover at a club and you can just get unlimited beers or what drinks or whatever. And I, I was just drinking ridiculously. Yeah, I just started drinking a lot. And there's one, I, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but I, I had blacked out. And then like I was in the police station and they were just interviewing me and then I guess, but then I ended up in my bed. I, I don't know what exactly happened that night, but there, there was just like that kind of stuff was happening in Japan. And when I was finishing my contract with my company, I had a, a three-year visa, so I I could like go to other jobs and stuff. And there was this uh, expat. He was an ex-navy, ex-football player dude, and uh, he had an English school. And he's like, "Oh, you know, like." Uh, you can uh, work for me. I'll, I'll get you an apartment. You can work in my school. And I was like, oh, sweet, you know. And when it came time to, like, move into my apartment, he was like, oh, I don't have the apartment yet. But you can you can live with uh, can live in my apartment for now. And then, uh, you know, you'll start the job. I was like, all right. But uh, I guess he had, uh, what is it, counted his chickens before they hatched. And he didn't really have the money or the job. And he ended up kicking me out of the apartment. I slept at the school for a couple of days until I remember I just went to a cyber cafe and just passed out in a chair. And I, I woke up and said, man, do I have to go back to America? Like, is this over? And I, I got up and checked the computer and, went, you know, like searched for an apartment and I had my bonus and everything for my old job. And I was able to find an apartment and it was actually going well. I found another job and stuff and at the YMCA too. And it was going pretty well, but then, I don't know if you remember that. Uh, I always think about the the Chappelle show, the when keeping it real goes wrong. I was like, man, this guy fucked me over. I got to show him what's up. 
And uh, so I started texting him, like fighting words and everything. And then he's like, meet me at the, he always had a bar. He's like, meet me at this bar. I was thinking in my head, man, I'm not going to meet you at the bar because that's where your friends will probably be. Like, I know where you live. You know, sure. I showed up at this uh, place with a baseball bat. I mean, he was ex-Navy, ex-football player. I, I, I don't really have any skills. And he was able to get me in some, some hole. I got some punches in, but he got me in some hold and I was on the ground and uh, his wife was like hitting me. And so I just kind of laid down there and he's like, you're going to jail, man. He was like, you're going to jail. And I, and I, you know, I couldn't do anything. I was just like held down like that and just started laughing because I mean, that, what, what more could I do? So I went to jail and I spent uh, 22 days in there and it, it kind of fucked with my head because they first said 48 hours for you to calm down. Oh, when I went to the prosecutor, they, they were like, oh, your stories don't match up. Ten more days. I was like, oh, what the fuck? And, you know, I did the ten more days. And I was like, all right, I'm getting out. And then they say, you go to the prosecutor. And they say, uh, uh, oh, ten more days. And I, by that time, I didn't even think I was getting out of jail anymore. Just to backtrack a bit, because this was uh, not so good for my mental health. I guess uh, after college, I had uh, done um, five tabs of LSD laced with mescaline. and. Um, Ended up on a huge trip, and I ended up in the, the psych ward for a couple of weeks on a 5250, and I was diagnosed with bipolar type 1. Uh, I kind of forgot about that, but going into Japan, I, I was basically unmedicated. You couldn't really take your medication there. I wasn't even trying it out or even therapy or anything, and then I'm, I'm now I'm in jail for 22 days. Luckily, my cellmate, was he, he was in there for growing like a pound of marijuana, and so we had some like lingo that we could use. He, he had lived in Minnesota for a bit. So I, I, I was able to get by and, and I mean, it, I mean, it was rough. It was rough, but, uh, I, cause I, I was still on a informal probation from my DUI in college because it was like three years after the DUI and I, I didn't want to contact the consulate. Yeah. I, I, I just spoke to Japanese interpreters and Japanese people like for the whole 22 days. And eventually I was able to get out. Obviously, I was let go from the YMCA job, but I somehow landed another job that I had applied for beforehand. I worked that for a little bit, but I was just really depressed because I was just outcasted by all the, all my friend, my girlfriend, my friends, my students. Everyone like just wouldn't talk to me, and I, I, I was falling into a pretty deep depression. And so, like at the two year mark, about I decided to go back to California. In California, I. I was just, I just felt like a failure. You know, I thought I was going to stay in Japan forever and it was my thing, but I just fucked it all up. The medication that I was prescribed, I had uh, the Seroquel, like a full bottle that I hadn't used. You know, I popped that and a bottle of Chivas and I guess I passed out and I was at my mom's house and she found me slumped over weird and I just woke up with a stomach pump or something, or something in my throat and uh, I was like, fuck, I even failed at suicide, you know? Obviously, they sent me to the psych ward again. So, uh, yeah, I was there in the psych ward again, my second time, and feeling really shitty, like a failure, like I couldn't do anything right. Uh, at least I was back in California, so I could smoke a shit ton of weed. Still drinking a bit, but uh, a lot of weed. Starting to experiment more with psychedelics and mushrooms and stuff, trying to change my mindset. Uh you know, people talk about, you know, doing mushrooms and, you know, going to the park or something. I was just doing it at home in my room and just trying to feel something. And, and I mean, 
I guess I thought it worked at the time, but it, it wasn't doing anything, you know? I was able to get myself together in some way, but I, I was more like on a, a death wish. I was just like, I want to just fucking live it up now. And, you know, anything goes, I don't, I don't give a fuck about my life. I can't even commit suicide. And I saved up some money. Some friends were teaching English in Vietnam. And they're like, you know, it's cheap as hell. Japan's kind of expensive. And so, uh, you know, I went out to Vietnam to teach English and, they statistically, I think, have the cheapest beers in the world. So I was just drinking a lot. I mean, yeah, that that led to some problems. I I had a met a girl my first month there, who actually became my wife. Well, you know, I've been married to for ten years now, and she was the ride or die. And she was, but then um, she became pregnant, and she was able, you know, she's normie. She was able to just completely stop everything and just stop using substances and. I like I quit for like a week and then I was like still doing it and I was a piece of shit. I, I don't have one picture of her pregnant. Those pregnancy photos people take, you know, I don't have one picture of her pregnant and I, I still feel ashamed about that to this day. I mean, during her pregnancy, uh, I was getting massive fights at bars. This mafia lady wanted to at least break my legs, but you know, she liked my wife, so she just uh slapped me and um yeah, it was it was wild times in Vietnam. I mean, that could be a whole podcast and stuff. So I'll kind of get to the important parts where, which was my daughter's birth. I felt like this tingling sensation in my brain. I was like, oh wow, this is like my, this is my life. This is you know, this is what life is all about. And unfortunately, it lasted only for like a week, and I still got back into the stuff. And it just came to a point where I was like, man, I I have to. I have to get out of Vietnam. My wife had told me like they learn about how weed is really bad in Vietnam, but then they just don't teach you about meth. So people think meth is, uh, must be all right. It was, it was that kind of vibe. But um, I, I got out of uh, Vietnam. I was working on my wife's and the daughter's or just my wife's uh, visa. She, my daughter was born American. So I came back six months before then started working I started working with kids on the autism spectrum, actually, as a behavior therapist. That was my first foray into psychology. I was liking my work, and I was able to get my wife over. And get, we got officially married. Yeah, it was things were looking nice, but then um, I was still smoking weed. I, I was starting to um, experiment with psychedelics and a coke, and um, you know, some drinking. And you know, she wouldn't like me drinking really. And but you know, I, I was getting something done, but I, I eventually led to like burnout and I, I quit my job and I ended up in the psych ward again. I remember I, I got out, had a few jobs for a few months at a time. Eventually, I, that's when I first started to try like a rehab and AA programs. It wasn't really sticking. It would only like last like two or three weeks. And, um, but I, I was starting to get my feet wet with AA and learning like, oh, there's a sponsor. Oh, there's a big book. So I was just kind of, kind of becoming familiar with it. I was able to get another job as a TBS coach working with at-risk youth. It was going pretty well. It wasn't such a good life. Around this time, I tried a residential rehab. And that really got to me because I was living at a facility in L.A., West LA for 30 days, you know, being taken to a meeting every night. It, it was actually kind of working. And for the first time in my life, I was able to get a sponsor. You know, uh, I saw this guy at a 
speaker meeting and he had a pretty cool story that I related to and asked him to be my sponsor. And things were going pretty good, but then I went back home <laughs> to Long Beach and I wasn't being taken to a meeting every day and my sponsor was kind of far away. And I, I was, I think I was at 46 days. And I was tell I was getting all cocky with it. I was telling my sponsor, "Oh, I, I quit all these drugs and alcohol. I can quit nicotine too." And he's like, "No, don't quit nicotine yet." And I was like, "Oh, you don't know what you're talking about." And he didn't know what he was talking about because I I was just in, outside in the backyard and there's just like a piece of weed on the ground. I was like, "Hmm, I need something because I'm not smoking shit." And I just popped open a can and smoked some weed, and then I was off to the races again for five years. In that five years, I, I was somewhat productive or i got into grad school and i almost got kicked out of grad school due to um disrupting the class and i had to do like the whole uh i had to have a meeting with like the the administration and stuff and i eventually got back and was able to complete my degree and i was like this is it like i found my calling you know i'm i'm a, a therapist i'm a amft and then um i couldn't hold a job I was working this one job, working with suicidal adolescents in home, but then my a close friend had committed suicide, and I was like, I can't work with suicide. I like asked for a month leave of absence. In that uh, month long absence or uh, medical leave, I, I went on this retreat to healing retreat, quote unquote, to a Joshua tree where I did uh, mushrooms and ketamine, and then I I basically came back manic. And I asked for like another month off and they let me go. And so I only had that job for like three or four months. Then I got another job somehow. They, they were pretty cool. It was working with me all ages and in home again, all over LA. And they they gave me a pre-employment drug test. And I was like, huh. And you know, I was like, weed's legal in California. So they must not be testing for that at least. I figured I'd be good. I was good for like three months. They didn't say anything. They gave me a caseload. I was working full time and everything. And then they let me know, hey, your drug test was positive. And I was like, what the fuck? And I was all pissed off at them. You know, I was like, why'd you let me know now? And I didn't say it to them, but I was just like pissed off. And they said like, you have a month to sober up. And I was like, you know, at least with the heavy weed usage, you know, it's like, it takes at least like a little over a month, you know, 35 days at least for a heavy user, I think. And I was like, this is impossible. And and so, like, I just ended up ghosting the job because I couldn't quit on time. The, the date I was supposed to quit, I, I lost my job and I had such a huge gap of employment. And I was like, man, my whole career is fucked. Like, I, no one's going to hire me with this much. You know, I, I got, I graduated and then, like, what didn't work for two years, you know, and it's going to be suspicious. And I was thinking I had to just disappear from this job too. And and then so on the date that they wanted me to turn in the negative drug test, February 6th, 2023, I decided to get sober and I, I called in every called in all my reinforcements, all the resources that I had. I, I hit up the rehab that I had been at before. Uh, I called up my sponsor that I had ghosted from five years ago when I went out again and didn't listen to him. He was he welcomed me back with open arms. And at my rehab, usually they they asked for um, they asked for you to go to meetings and get a sponsor. They dropped that requirement, but I was like, I need everything. And I started going to meetings every day. I heard the ninety and ninety, and I was like, okay, I'm doing ninety and ninety, even though. I started a week late. I was like, I'll hit up a few meetings a day then and get this 90 and 90 and make it a habit. And I started going to multiple meetings 
on the weekends and stuff. And I was getting drug tested at the rehab. And eventually I started a testing negative and I, I just like a shot in the dark. I just hit up my old supervisor at my old job and was like, Hey, I'm sorry. I ghosted the work. You know, I was ashamed of my addiction and alcoholism and I'm testing clean now. Do, do you guys still have a spot for me? And, and my, my spot, my therapist said he hadn't seen this in, um, his 40 years of working but they took me back and um i was able to get my job back and my main my main anxiety was like how, how do i keep up with these meetings with the job and i still did with the website the there's a lot of meetings in long beach so meetings i mean if there's one thing i can say is this, meetings have helped me so much going to meetings and doing the steps working with my sponsor hearing people share Sharing myself sometimes when I'm mainly I listen, but um, you know, I sh- share when I can and just try to relate to others and hearing other stories just really gives me, I don't know what it is I hear. It's like for me right now, uh, a meeting is like a workout, is like exercise. Like sometimes I'm tired and don't want to go, but if I do it, I'll feel good. And so I tell myself, hey, you'll feel good if you do it. So I go. And I feel good every time I go to meeting. Sometimes I don't even hear anything I want to hear, but just like completing the act of a meeting just makes me feel good and just keeps my sobriety intact. Right now, as of uh, this day, I'm 110 days sober and I I feel like I'm going for life. We just did the fourth and fifth step at my uh, step study with my sponsor the last week. And I'm, I'm just feeling like I can keep this going and I can be there for my wife. I can be there for my daughter. Yeah, I'm I'm just feeling I can do this for life now. And thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Q. Oh, tell me about how this works, being Persian and the higher power thing. That's actually been um, difficult for me because, you know, actually my family came before the Islamic revolution. So they kind of saw religion go haywire. So I was brought up with no religion. So I don't have a concept of God so much, maybe agnostic in a way. So the chapter to the agnostics kind of relates to me. I I had actually tried a Ramadan once and how I learned about Allah was, um, you know, he's everything. He's the rain, he's the universe, the energy. And so for my higher power, it's, it's kind of, relates to that like uh like it's just everything and because I, I don't know when i was brought up and i was learning about god in this society it was uh you know the old man in the sky for me and it's hard for me to conceptualize that as you know helping me out i i just kind of see it as the universe and like everything all the energy my higher power just going back to what i was saying before with the meeting my God, G-O-D, is my group of drunks. That's what really helps me, the, the meetings, the, the people that I meet that I would have never met before. That's what uh, my higher power is. Do you go to meetings that say the Our Father at the end of it? The, the, the Father prayer, yeah. yeah. Whose Father? Our Father, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I listen to it and, um, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I still don't know it by heart. I know certain parts like uh, forgive uh, forgive those that trespass against us. Like I just figure with with religion and everything. My the last practicing Muslim in my family was Sufi. Was my grandma, 
And, you know, they believe like all ways go to the same God. So I just feel, you know, it's just, it's just God in a different flavor. Oh, yes. We love, it's Sufi. Yeah, Sufi, like the whirling dervishes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do love that. I do. When I was struggling with the whole higher power thing, an early sponsor of mine said, all paths lead to the same destination. And I just feel I've grown up and been born and raised in America my whole life. So I was never Christian per se, but it, the language and the the way that it's presented, it, it, it makes sense. So I can understand God better. I, I don't call myself Christian, but like, everything's in English, you know, so I can read it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So are you bipolar? Yeah, I'm bipolar type one. Okay. I don't know the difference between any of them, but you're all Uh, properly medicated now. Yeah. So, so yeah. And usually the medications say, you know, don't smoke weed, don't uh, drink alcohol, warning labels and stuff. And this is the first time in my life that I felt like content, like not too happy, not too depressed, but just in the middle, like content. Cause like, I feel my medications actually working now because I'm taking it as prescribed. So is, is that your daughter in the background? Oh, you can hear. It. Oh, sorry. Yes, yeah. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. It might be. There's a bunch of people over <laughs> some right. cousin and aunt. Yeah. Sorry. So I have a couple more questions. Do you have more time? Ah, of course. Okay, so February 6th, at this point in time, you are to have given a clean test, but instead you decide to start on that day. Can you can you walk me through that day? Like, what was different? What was different? Did the shame get so overwhelming? Did something happen? Well, uh, oh yeah, something did happen. Because about... As that day was coming up, I was just not responding to work. You know, they hadn't officially let me go. I I was, had it in my head that I was going to sign up for rehab. I was basically going on my last hurrah. And, um, I, you know, I was drinking, smoking in my room. And my my daughter had seen me smoking weed and had seen me drinking, obviously. But um, I, I had done, a, I was doing a line and she like walked in and like, as I was doing it and for the first time was like, daddy, what are you doing? And she was like both scared and accusing. And I was like, holy shit. And, um, you know, I, I had to, in the moment I was just like, you know, daddy has a problem. Um, and I, I'm going to fix it. And, you know, this is a bad drug and, uh, I, I'm going to go to rehab. And so it just really hammered in the point that I have to get to rehab. And in, once I'm in rehab, because I tried it multiple times before, but I have to stay sober, you know, and that, you know, as I said, that led to the, all the meetings and the sponsor contact and all that. But uh, yeah, I think it was my daughter seen me do a line of cocaine. Um, I haven't shared that too much with people, but um, that really, I don't know what I felt. I was like embarrassed, ashamed. Like it was just really bad. That's hard. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. You did 90 and 90 and you're at 110 days now. So you're probably just recently coming off of a daily meeting. Yeah, but I I still go like, I guess like Tuesdays and Thursdays I don't go, but then like on the weekends I can hit up two or three, but some, 
Sometimes I, I hit up more. Sometimes I hit up a little less. But I'm averaging like uh, five to eight meetings a week. Nice. 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 Yeah. And your relationship yeah, with your wife and your daughter? Is improving dramatically. Like, oh, man, my with my daughter, like, you know, she's nine years old. And, you know, I was always just high on the couch. And I didn't – I just kind of thought she was a kid and she couldn't really talk that much. But now I'm realizing we can have these full-on conversations together. She has these points of view and she's a drama at her school that she needs advice on, you know. I'm just, like, present. I'm not on the couch. It was a little rough at first because I was coming out of my drunkenness and, um, you know, I didn't really have a a role in the family because I was always on the couch. So I was trying to discipline when, you know, my wife runs the house and, you know, what I've learned to like, you know, consult with her, my wife and not like snap so much, not be so irritable. It was a learning process for sure, but uh, it's improved dramatically. Like I I feel like I'm actually a husband and father now. Mm. Well, keep doing what you're doing. Is there anything that you're thinking of now or that you left out of your story that you'd like to share? I'm, I feel like um, I'm myself now. I'm being who I'm supposed to be before I was just kind of just like making my, putting myself in a haze and I had no direction and, I wasn't really like much of a go-getter, but now I'm like more focused and you know doing what I'm supposed to do. But that's about it. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a huge change from 111 days ago. Yeah. For the alcoholic listening, perhaps also early in sobriety, what message would you like to leave for them? Go to meetings. <laughs> I know they seem kind of. It can seem kind of lame or boring or like a waste of time. But if you just sit and listen and just know that it's going to help you, you'll eventually get it. And, you know, it's, it's just something to do. You know, you're quitting drugs and alcohol. You, you're missing out on all that time you were using. You know, you have the time to go to these meetings and then they'll fill up your time. You know, you can, you can just go to one a day or you can, you know, if you have a lot of time, go two or three a day, but they will help. and you're hanging out with other people that are in your position, but with more time and that you can learn from. So I just can't emphasize that enough. Thank you very much, Q. I really appreciate your time and your honesty. Of course. Thank you for having me. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.